but grateful for this opportunity to uh, spend time in the Word with you this morning. And um, one of the key things that I've been reflecting on as well for these uh, past few months, it's the question of wisdom. The question of wisdom. It seems that that is one thing that we seem not to have enough of. I don't know if any of you here would raise their hand and say, no, thank you, Fali, I've got enough wisdom. Anyone? <laughs> right? It's one of those things that we always try to get more of. And, uh, well, actually, that's a good question. Would you think, would, how would you answer this question? Are you wise? If someone asks you, are you wise? The other option is, are you foolish? So I know it doesn't sound good, but would you say that you are wise? And I, I would guess that if I ask some of you that, you would answer, you would tell me that it depends who I ask, right? And it depends at what time, uh, at what season of your life I'm asking that question. But the question is, are you wise? Do you live a wise life? But another question comes out of that. What does it mean to be wise? And it's a very important question to ask. What does it mean to be wise? And I guess that if I ask you that question, you would answer it in different ways as well. You would say that being wise means to behave well. It means to have knowledge on things and especially on God's word, to have mastery over some areas of knowledge and mastery over your own life like uh, Yoda or Master Rugwe, you know, or those guys who look wise uh, in all of those cartoons. And even maybe some of you would actually, as I ask that question, what does it mean to be wise, some of you may Remember some of the answers that Harry has already provided you as he talked about those things and preached through the passage that I'm going to be speaking on uh, this morning, last September. And so if you do remember, well done. He's, he's going to be very happy to know that you do remember that and, uh, uh, and you know what it means to be wise. And so you might wonder, why is it that I'm going back to a passage that Harry already preached last September? I don't know. But, but I just feel that we need to hear again and again from God's word what wise living is. Because as time goes and as we see what's going on around us, it becomes harder and harder to really stand on the standard of God's word and live out the standard of God's word in terms of wise living. And the reason why it's harder and harder is because it goes against our very nature. It goes against who we are naturally. We are not naturally wise. And so there's a passage that really addresses that and helps us answer that question, and that's in the book of James, that it seems you've been camping on for a little bit now. Right, Harry? And <laughs> I've listened to your two sermons from September. They're amazing, by the way. Thank you. Uh, and so James chapter 3 is where we are, James chapter 3, and we will read from verse 13 to 18, but really we will focus on verse 17 today, just on verse 17, but let's read verse 13 to 18 so that we have a context for what we're going to be talking about as we try to understand what it means to be wise. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. 
But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every pract- evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. Well, James is called by many the uh, Proverbs of the New Testament, and others say that actually this book of James is kind of the understanding and application of the Sermon on the Mount by James as he listened to his half-brother, and this is how he's fleshing out what it means to practically live our faith as kingdom citizens. What does it mean to be a Christian in this world? How do we stand out? What difference does it make to be a Christian except what we do on Sunday mornings? What other way can we see that a Christian is set apart from the world, he is being salt and light where he is? And the book of James answers that questions and covers all sorts of things. And as we come here to James chapter 3, as Harry said, we come to the work of words. And we come to see how Christians are to control their words in verse 3 to 12, but now as we come to verse 13 to 18, we see how real Christians, and I'm quoting Harry again here, employ heavenly wisdom gently doing good and promoting peace. We come to see here that genuine faith is proven by the gracious wisdom it displays and dispenses and the fruit it produces. Thank you, Harry. That's a great quote. Uh, (laughs) Basically, the book of James tells us that Being a Christian is made evident by how we speak and how we live. And in the immediate context, he is talking specifically to those who have a ministry teaching God's word. That's what he says in verse 1, because of the stricter judgment that they are under. But I believe that this exhortation is broadened to every believer as we all wrestle and struggle with the destructiveness of our tongue, don't we? And we all struggle as well with wise living, with what it means to be wise in this world and in our relationships with people. And so on one hand, he says that God's wisdom is leading us to those, I mean, enables us for those harmonious relationships. Look there at verse 13, what he says, who among you is wise and understanding? He's going straight to the point of what he wants to talk about. After having dealt with our speech, Now he deals with our behavior and how we must stand out in this world through that behavior. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct, his works, in the gentleness of wisdom. So in in, in one other way, what James is saying is that show me your wisdom by the way you live. Show me your life and I will tell you how, if you're wise or not. And the key component there of wise living is the word meekness, gentleness that you see there. It's marked by gentleness. Wisdom is marked by gentleness. This term was used of a tamed horse, something powerful, 
but submissive to its master. So to be wise is to have all of that spirit-enabled power of God in us, but to be fully under the control of our master, of our Lord Jesus Christ. A meek person uh, may be very strong, but is completely surrendering that strength to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Moses was described as the humblest and meekest man on earth in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, and yet he was a strong leader. Jesus described himself as meek in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and he was meek. And so, again, meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. But on the other hand, while he affirms that, he also shows us the contrast. Look there with me from verse 14 to verse 16. He shows us what it, what it looks like to employ worldly wisdom this time. Not the heavenly wisdom that we are seeking, what we're talking about here. But how do we know that we don't have it yet? How do we know that we desperately need that wisdom from God? Well, look there in verse 14 to 16. employs words like, It's manifested through bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance. It is a wisdom that is earthly, natural, demonic. It it brings disorder and every evil practice. And so you could see here a key thought in James as James rolls out his argument here. Wise living is exposed in relationships. The, the, the answer to the question, are you wise, is mostly seen as to how you interact with others. Your acquisition of that divine wisdom is tested in the spheres of all your horizontal relationships in the church, in our homes, and in all of our lives. So let's look specifically at verse 17, as I mentioned. And in verse 17, we will see seven characteristics. Seven? We'll be here until tonight. No, you won't. Don't worry. We'll go quickly through them. But we'll see seven characteristics of applying godly wisdom to relationships that would enable us to assess the kind of wisdom that we display in our daily lives. In the question, are you wise, this text gives us seven ways of answering that question. Seven things that will enable us, characteristics that will enable us to know if we are wise or not, as compared to the standard of God's word. So it's not as compared to what the world say. It's not as compared to how you feel. So it's not like, well, I think I'm pretty wise. I mean, compared to the idiot down the road I am. But what does God's word say about wisdom? So let's assess our lives against those, these seven standards of wisdom or seven characteristics of wisdom from God's word. You could see there in verse 17, and you could just follow along as we go through these different characteristics. First of all, godly wisdom is from above. Is from above. And so the Bible is telling us here that human beings are naturally experts in foolishness. We are very good at being foolish, and being wise requires a supernatural intervention. God has to step in into our lives, and we cannot, on our own and by our own means, acquire that wisdom that we are talking about. 
It needs an intervention from God. And that is in line with what he said in chapter 1, right? In verse 5, as he's calling us to ask for that wisdom from above and God will give it generously and without reproach. It is in line with other passages like Proverbs 2.6. Proverbs 2.6 says this, For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and discernment. And so... True wisdom, godly wisdom, is based on the knowledge of the Word of God. But beyond that, true wisdom is based on the knowledge of God Himself, of who He is. We all know this verse, right? Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So you see the parallelism there? It is telling us that wisdom is more than understanding and knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's what you know about God that you apply to your different areas of life. It is the ability to live life in a manner that is pleasing to God because you understand who God is, you understand His truth, and you want to submit all your life to that truth. You want to be led by the Spirit so that you would apply that truth to every area of your life. That is wisdom. Wisdom, it is to understand that God is the source of wisdom, is the definition of wisdom, and we seek to understand what it means to know God more and more, and then we apply it to the different areas of life. I'm going to apply this often to the area of marriage because that's definitely an area where I know I lack wisdom. <laughs> Ask my wife. I'm so glad she's not here, actually, because um, <laughs> she'll, she'll just have too much truth to reveal. <laughs> and so because of that, I know I do lack wisdom. But there's one thing that I realize sometimes that husbands and wives forget this basic truth that godly wisdom is from above. I know some wives, I mean, just generally speaking, all right? I'm not saying they're in this room, that think that they are the ultimate source of wisdom and that some husband just surrender to it and say, you are right, honey. You know, so that to avoid any kind of problem, you just agree with whatever the wife says, right? Not in this room. Okay. All right. But just hypothetically speaking, just, you know, just take it. Uh, I've seen as well some parents that forget this basic truth. That godly wisdom is from above. Because in the way that, they, that we educate our children sometimes, it seems that we want them to be wise in our own way. We want to impose our own rules. We want to ask them to obey what mom and dad say rather than what the Bible say. And so we take them and take the, taking them to the Bible, we take them to the imaginary book of Second Opinions, chapter 3, you know? <laughs> And we tell them what we think is right, what we think is right. And so the poor child asks, you know, so why must I do that? Because I said so. And by doing so, we are, instead of leading them to the source of wisdom that they desperately need in their lives, we are making ourselves the source of wisdom in their lives. We need to be careful about that in our relationship to make sure that we understand and apply this very basic obvious truth some of you might say duh that was kind of obvious of the fact that godly wisdom comes from above 
But next, you could see there in your text that godly wisdom is pure. James underscores the primacy of purity by saying that it is first pure. Without purity, it is not wisdom from above, and wisdom from above can only be pure. Pure mean, means unmixed, no impurity, unadulterated. And this is pointing to moral purity. It's, 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 this, it's in the sense of, if you look there in the context in verse 14, it is uh, being wise in the sense of being freed from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is mentioned in verse 14 and verse 16. It is having a mind that is freed from those things. It is focusing on the purity of our motives. Why is it that I do what I do? I do what I do for the glory of God and for the eternal good of others. That is moral purity. It is moral purity when we do what we do for the glory of God and for the spiritual good of others. Our motive for seeking and using wisdom must always be to glorify God, which means to put his character on display, and to build up the people that we are interacting with. We especially need that when we get into fights in our relationships, don't we? I mean, again, hypothetically speaking, I don't suppose that it's happening here in Cornerstone, but I'm just, you know, assuming it's happening in relationships When you argue with someone, what is your motive? When you are engaged in a conversational fight, when you're using that tongue that was just mentioned right before in order to prove your point to that person, what is the motive that is pushing you to do that? Often, it is self-protection. It is pride. It is the idea of, I want to make sure that this other person, especially if it's my spouse, understands that I am right and she is wrong. And so in doing so, we are forgetting what must be the core motive of our appliance of wisdom. Our goal must be to glorify God and seek the spiritual good of others. And that's why when we grow in God's wisdom, we learn to fight clean, okay? We learn to fight clean. Those are wonderful fights that you can start to develop with your wife where you know that you, you are supposed to learn to fight clean so you don't fight, you know, dirty and you say, you're like, you know, I love you, honey, but you're wrong, you know, but yeah, but I love you. You know, you, you learn to fight clean. <laughs> and as we grow wisdom, our motives are purified. Our motives become more God-focused rather than self-focused. We are not acting with godly wisdom when the focus of our attention with the use of that wisdom is ourselves. We are growing in wisdom when the focus of our attention is God and putting Him on display. So James continues here. He says not only that godly wisdom is pure, but godly wisdom is also peaceable. Purity is first, and then wisdom is peaceable. In other words, if you compromise purity for the sake of peace, you're not acting in godly wisdom. But if you hold to purity in a contentious manner, then you're also not displaying godly wisdom because godly wisdom is peaceable. And seeking peace in relationships is not a minor theme in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And 
after having, for instance, again, in the, in the realm of marriage, after having spoken to both wife and husband in 1 Peter 3, in verse 1 to 7, listen to what he says in verse 11. 1 Peter 3, verse 11, as Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He says, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So that notion of peace applies to all relationship. And it speaks, the language here is the language of a hunter who is tracking an animal, who is actively, intensely, intentionally pursuing an animal to catch it. In that same way, he says, we must be pursuing peace with one another as much as it is possible. And so if you are one who is always stirring up controversies, who is always trying to, you know, uh, debate on petty issues, you are not acting with godly wisdom. We should never, never, never compromise doctrinal purity for the sake of peace. Meaning, so that there is no fight in the home, I'm just not going to say anything when the other person is in sin. But we should also, on the other side, we should not fight over minor matters where godly, Bible-believing people defer. Because our goal is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4, verse 3 takes, say, says. But that keeping of the peace, that application of godly wisdom so that we would live in peace, it takes focus and conviction. It takes focus and conviction. And so godly wisdom is pure. It's from above, first of all. Godly wisdom is pure. Godly wisdom is peaceable. And what's the next word we have there? Godly wisdom is considerate. Considerate. And I believe that this is the central thought here that James has in this verse. You'll see that all the other characteristics that we have already talked about and those that we're going to talk about are all connected to this one word. They're either flowing out of it or they're leading to it, all the other thoughts. And this is a word that the young people in the ministry that I lead at Madagascar 3M have come to know and love. They've come to love this word because we've been often talking about it. This word is says by one um, William Barclay, an expert on... Greek words, say that this word, of all Greek words in the New Testament, this is the most untranslatable. It is very hard to translate this word. It is the word epiakes. Okay, write that the way you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the word epiakes. And this word, the way I'll put it, is all the fruits of the Spirit combined in one word. It is like, you know, you have those three-in-one shampoos. This is a nine-in-one. <laughs> eh? This is a nine-in-one word. It's a combo word for all the fruits of the Spirit, and thus it is a characteristic that is produced by the Spirit. APA case is a quality that Jesus possessed in, as mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. It is a characteristic that is required of all elders in the local church in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. And it is required of every believer in Philippians 4, 5. We all must be epiakes. That's wonderful, but what does that mean? Glad you asked. 
Epiekes is the idea of tolerance, gentleness, forbearance, patience, gentleness, meekness, consideration of others, diligence, level-headedness, self-control. And I can keep going. Again, one of the most untranslatable words in the New Testament. And it has so many meanings that I'll just give you five. Why? Just because. And I believe that those five, let's say, shades of meanings are what James means here and what Paul means in Philippians 4, 5. First of all, Epieke speaks of wise tolerance. It speaks of not being too adamant about anything or everything. It speaks about having the wisdom to know what hill to die on. It speaks of knowing when to speak and knowing when not to say anything. It speaks of not consistently fighting to try to make a point. And that is a tension in every believer's life, isn't it? We sometimes try to determine, should I say something? Or <laughs> would it be better not to say anything at this point? And now there we need wisdom. We need to become more epiakes in that sense. We are spending our lifetime trying to figure that out. It speaks of wise tolerance, but it also speaks of loving kindness, of someone who is tender, someone who is warm, someone who is easy to come talk to, someone who has a soothing influence to the people around them, someone who can make you comfortable in your trial, someone that you know that if you go and speak to that person, just being around that person makes you feel better. Do you know people like that in your life? All right, nobody knows anyone like that in their lives. That's okay. Uh, pray for one. Uh, it speaks of wise tolerance, loving kindness, but also of patient endurance, of doing some spiritual toe shrinking, not being easily upset like, like someone. Every time, everywhere you go, someone's always stepping on your toes. You know those people, right? It seems that just their way from the office to home was the field, like, was like a minefield, as you hear them when they come home. It's like this horrible thing where the whole world ganged up to make their life difficult. Well, that's not an EPKS person. An EPKS person doesn't want to fight. He's peaceable. When someone mistreats him or her, he does not speak evil of that person or retaliate. It is a person that endures patiently whatever comes into their lives another shade of meaning is that it speaks of humble surrender or submission it is this ability to willingly surrender their rights their choice just for the good of others they know that they are on the right they know that they could you know defend this and they could quote at least seven verses that you know support their view but they choose to let it go they choose to let it go. They humbly surrender or submit their right to be right in that sense. And it speaks as well of joyful contentment. It speaks of being happy and content. Whatever the circumstances, whatever disappointments they face, whatever others are doing to them, whatever trials they face, whatever difficulties they find themselves in, whatever is thrown at them, they stay in this state of joyful contentment. They know who they are and they know whose they are. They know that God is in control and they do not fret based on what's happening around them. That is that one word, 
considerate, as it's translated them, so, there. So how would you translate that whole thing, this whole concept that I just described? Hard, right? In some versions, they use the word reasonableness. That's a complicated word. I don't even know what that means. But I think one of a good word would be to use, you know, one of those hyphenated words. I would say meek-heartedness would be one good translation of APA case. Because that's what it is, to have a meek heart. Do you see how easy it would be to be married to an APA case person? Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's where you're supposed to say, hey, I am, you know, so that your spouse feels good, okay? But that's true. It is amazing to have relationships with APAKS people, with people that are characterized by wise tolerance, loving kindness, patient endurance, humble submission, and joyful contentment. They are great people to be with. But you know what? That's what we are all called to be. That's why we need divine wisdom. That's why we need that godly wisdom is so that we could live out a PA case in our lives so that the fruits of the Spirit will be displayed in the way we handle our relationships in our lives. That's what it's all about. And then it continues there. The fifth word is very much connected to the, to the, to the ones before. Godly wisdom is submissive. It says that it is not talking about being a carpet or being credulous or being gullible. It speaks of a disability to defer, to be quick to hear, as it says in James 1, 19, right? Lord gave us, what, one mouth, two ears, but sometimes we kind of reverse that uh, in the way we handle relationships. But we need to understand that it's submissive. And then the sixth one, it's full of mercy and good fruits. And here you could see again an echo of the Beatitudes. And I think you noticed that, right? We spoke about gentleness, purity, peace. All of those are in the Beatitudes there in Matthew 5. And here another one. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And Jesus emphasized that in Luke 6, 36, when he says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Being merciful is not only having compassion for the person who is suffering, but also showing that compassion, displaying that compassion to that person in the way that you have that relationship in that person. And look there, it speaks of fruits, harking us back to what he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, on how faith he's seen through practical, de- through practical deeds. Because without good fruits, what does he say in James 2.16? If faith doesn't lead you to display fruits, what good is that what's the point what's the point of what we believe if it doesn't shape how we feel and how we live if it doesn't shape how we speak and how we act and so talking about how we act look at the seventh point there it says godly wisdom is without doubting and without hypocrisy the word doubting here may mean impartial but it may also mean undivided it speaks of an unwavering loyalty to God. And he will hit it again in chapter 4, verse 4. It says that you cannot be uh, friends with the world and friend with God at the same time. But it says that godly wisdom does not play, um, does not try to manipulate truth, does not uh, play politics with truth to, for your own personal advantage. It uns- unswervingly serves the truth. 
And so godly wisdom is sincere, without hypocrisy. It is what you see is what you get. Godly wisdom is a life of integrity. There is no two version of you. There is not a social media version of you and the at-home grumpy version of you. There is just you. You know, there is no hidden garden. There is just you trying to display God. And so, just to finish it here, because uh, you can start hearing the hoofbeats of the next group coming. Um, saving faith automatically leads to wise living. Wise living is applied knowledge. It's stemming out of our conviction, out of what we know about God, and it is applied to our relationship. Wise living is also a key component of our faithful witness. If we want to be light and salt in this world, we must progressively come out of what we were as corpses, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we must become new beings with a new life, being sanctified, bearing fruit, and living wisely. Wise living is part of who we are because of the gospel, and that's the next point that I wanted to make The gospel is validated. The transforming power of the gospel is validated by your wise living. This is where it's key. And you would notice that here we don't have any kind of disclaimer based on where you are. This is a universal requirement for every believer for all times in all places. Whether it is in America, in affluent America, where you are struggling with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and those temptations. Or it is in Madagascar where the syncretistic um, you know, ancestor worship practices are kind of making it hard for you to stand on biblical truth. It is in those times, as you develop relationship in those spheres, it is in those times that you must display godly wisdom. That you must ask God who will give you that godly wisdom that you need for that very moment so that you would live out what you believe. It is a personal commitment, your convictions leading you to increasingly living free of the, of the fear of man, free of outer, uh, external pressures, free of trying to find satisfaction in other things, but just being anchored, being rooted in the confidence of who your God is and what he has promised. And so this undivided commitment is what we are commanded here to apply. We have to live that way. And you might say, you know, you don't know my wife, you don't know my children, you don't know my boss, you don't know my work, you don't know the traffic that that you face. All you do is sit under a coconut tree down in Madagascar there. What do you know? And that's true. I don't know these things that you go through. But what I know is that the Bible tells us that the proof of our maturity or lack thereof is how wise we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just grateful for this text reminding us that wise living is indeed a gospel issue. And the more we grasp the gospel and the more the gospel grasps, uh, gets hold of us, grips us, the wiser we grow. And the wiser we grow, the clearer we display the transforming power of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be God-exalting, Christ-honoring, spirit-empowered, proclaimers of the gospel with our words and with our wise living for your own glory and for the eternal good of others. In your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.